I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, coming to you alive from the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. This is where we stop using technology to optimize human beings for the market and start optimizing technology for the human future, or even the present. It's not too late to make people a favored species, the subject of civilization's story rather than the objects. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, founder of the Internet Archive, Brewster Kale. And what we've got here is the Library of Alexandria for the Digital Age. We've got it so we can make all the published works of humankind, books, music, video, web pages, back to Sumerian tablets, all available to anybody that wants to have access to them. Brewster will be sharing his vision of an open network that lets everyone access all the information in the world. Oh, right. It's called the Internet. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I'm finally wrapping up my marathon Team Human tour. I really feel like there's more than enough pages and hours of interviews and podcasts online already. And if any of them has sparked your interest, let me humbly suggest that the best way to go deeper is to read or listen to my book, Team Human. It's only a three or four hour read, and it's really meant as more of a journey than a collection of facts. It's not a book about something so much as a book that is something. It's what all books used to be back when they were written by people who thought of themselves as writers, creating experiences for readers. And I don't mean that as bragging so much as a throwback to an earlier era and an invitation to experience that. You can continue to read written versions of these monologues on Medium and to check out teamhuman.fm 
for my upcoming appearances, especially as they become fewer and far between. I'm doing a final Team Human open classroom at the 92nd Street Y on May 21st, and upcoming talks in Brooklyn and Ottawa and Detroit over the next couple of months. Propaganda used to be about getting people to believe stuff. The church, government, or later corporations would create stories for what was going on in order to get people behind some idea or policy. Propaganda, the word originally meant to propagate the gospel of Christ. Then, the term was revived by public relations guru Ed Bernays when he was describing the way the Woodrow Wilson administration got Americans to support U.S. involvement in World War I. Propaganda was about telling the same story through so many media channels at once that there appeared to be only one story. And now... Propaganda is really more about getting people to question what they believe or that there's any truth at all. Uh, Undermine faith in everything, not just the stories on the news, but the people who are telling the stories, the platforms, and fact-based reality itself. Facts are, after all, the enemy of beliefs. What many of us forget, though, is that This is really an appropriation of the counterculture's techniques. This is what the situationists were doing, or the hippies and heads of the 1960s, before Watergate anyway. It felt as if the press and the government were on the same side, along with the whole media telling the same story to all of us. There was no way for the underfunded counterculture to compete with mainstream reality programming, except by undermining all of its premises. And this movement became known to some as Operation Mindfuck. We'll call it Operation Mindfudge for our radio audiences. The term was coined back in 1968 by Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea in the books The Illuminatus Trilogy. The idea was pranking everything in order to undermine people's faith in government and authority in general. Remember, in 1968, government was Richard Nixon and the Vietnam War. The counterculture was peace and love, hippies putting daisies in rifle barrels. The idea of Operation Mindfudge was to break the trance, say things that may or may not be true, but probably not, but maybe. Like, let's levitate the Pentagon as an act of protest, or they published conspiracy stories that Lyndon Johnson had sexually abused the exit wound in JFK's head when his body was being transported back to Washington. Part of the game with Operation Mindfudge was the idea that anything anyone in the counterculture was doing at any time could be part of an elaborate prank. And this would put outsiders, the status quo people, in a really difficult position. Right? The only safe assumption was that anything the hippie was doing could be part of Operation Mindfudge, some sort of prank. But because this could only make a person really paranoid, one had to assume that whatever they were doing was probably harmless. They were just, after all, pranks. This, it was hoped, would keep the counterculture safe from prosecution. Anything they were doing 
would just be chalked up as some little pranky thing. But over the next decades, it was the progressive left whose ideas ended up becoming mainstreamed. Really, from all in the family onwards, it was progressive values in fictional TV, from Maud to Mash and Murphy Brown to the West Wing. And Operation Mindfudge became a tool of the alt-right. Is the cult of Keck the frog, is it real? Can they cast spells on social media that change the way people think and vote? Or even the president himself releasing more decoys per minute than an Apache fighter jet, forcing Americans to, at the very least, to entertain the thought structures that the entire media is run by the deep state. Anything is possible, right? Climate change is a hoax. The earth may be flat, as an increasingly vocal minority is arguing. Even misinterpreted videos on Twitter, they force everyone to stop and think twice before deciding that they know what it is they're really looking at. But the value of Operation Mindfudge isn't to exchange one delusion for another. It's not about replacing the fantasy of a borderless world with that of a walled nation-state, but seeing all of them as extreme, ideological endpoints. They are reality tunnels. They're perceptual understandings shaped by our experiences and our prejudices. None of them can be understood as absolute. But, and this is very important, but at the same time, some of them are a whole lot closer to reality than other ones. Doing Operation Mindfudge for real and abandoning the stories we've been living by means growing up, not dumbing down. I'm Sarah Lagesson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jason Schmidt, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Gail Bradbrook. I'm from Extinction Rebellion, and I'm also on Team Human. I'm Claire Farrell from Extinction Rebellion, and I'm also on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. I'm delighted to be speaking today with one of my true internet heroes, Brewster Kale. Brewster made a small and rather accidental fortune on some of the original shareware networking tools and immediately went on to promote the sort of internet we all used to dream about. His internet archive is a rich collection of texts, movies, and more, all open and all free. He created the Wayback Machine, a way of seeing what any website looked like in the past, and along with now-deceased internet activist Aaron Swartz, he embarked on an open library project to digitize library books and lend them out the same way physical libraries lend out their books. The debate around this effort, including calls from the Authors Guild to shut down the project, led Brewster to reach out to me to help him articulate why lending e-versions of books in a controlled fashion is actually good for everyone not just another excuse for extracting value from authors. So, hey, I know you've, you're a busy man, but thanks for uh, thanks for coming and doing this. I didn't realize till, or didn't remember till I was looking at your bio again, that you went to, uh, you graduated Scarsdale High School in what, 78? <laughs> yes, yeah, 78. Yeah, I was 79. <laughs> 
fantastic. I was directing all those plays. Did you see any plays when you were at? Oh, yes, of course. The drama club was actually the fun people. Exactly. I did. uh, I directed Godspell while you were there. And uh, you're a good man, Charlie Brown, all with uh, our our noted celebrity uh, alum, Aaron Sorkin. Yes. (laughs) Uh, That's great. No, I, 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 I think I'd run into that. You, you also went there. Well, I love your work. I like your writings. Um, they're very clear. They're off, you know, they're really pertinent in terms of the subjects of the times, but you know, an unobvious angle. Just thank you. Um, oh, good, good well, work. Thank you. Thank you for, for your work. I mean, a lot of my work depends on your work. So I, I think for, for listeners, it'd be great for them to understand the uh, the Internet Archive story because yep. uh, a, a lot of them don't. So you you started out. You were you you developed uh, uh, one of the main components of Mosaic, I guess. Yes. So in 1980, um, the I I was trying to figure out what to do with my life uh, as an undergraduate, a geek, and uh, and an idealist, and thought, okay, let's build the library of everything. And mm-hmm. let's build the, you know, the Memex, the, li- the Library of Congress on your desk. All of this stuff had be- already been promised, but never delivered. So I thought, okay, that, that couldn't be that hard. Why don't we just do that? <laughs> and um, so it turned out there were some problems. One was we didn't have computers that were very good. So I helped work on a project called Thinking Machines. Uh, it was a connection machine supercomputer that was allowed us to go and put an enormous amount of material online. When I say enormous, we're really talking about 400 newspapers and magazines. Woo-hoo. Um, it, it took a supercomputer to have five gigabytes of disk space. Um, but we did that, and we put this all online in a search engine that you could search with, with just words. You, end users could just search, and it was fabulous. But then we needed to make it so that everybody could use it. So I did a system called Waze wider information servers. It came before the web. It was the first publishing system for the internet because I wanted to anchor publishing in the open, not in these closed proprietary systems like AOL or LexisNexis at the time. And so I wanted to get this ARPANET thing that was, you know, this military-ish thing to be the anchor for the publishers. So I got Dow Jones and Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Encyclopedia Britannica and Reuters. All of these were my partners and, and, uh, um, customers at a little company called Waze Incorporated that came after after thinking machines. Then we could then try to get it so that people could get paid by publishing on the net. And that's where I we did the first advertising-based site and we did the first subscription-based site uh, on this uh, new thing called the World Wide Web, which was by the early 1990s was starting to come around and start to be used. Um, but we really wanted a royalty model. Advertising really wasn't the great, a great way to go. Uh, right. And AOL had this royalty model. And so we sold ways to AOL to try to get their royalty model to work with the publishers, just as they pivoted to um, be basically ad-based. Um, and uh, so left ways with AOL and left to form Alexa Internet, um, which was to... Alexa, short for the Library of Alexandria. And the idea is there to try to catalog the web. So we collected a whole copy, but we also started this nonprofit called the Internet Archive at the same time and Mm -hmm. wrote a contract into the soul of the for-profit Alexa Internet that it donates everything that it collects to the Internet Archive with a six-month time delay. And um, 
to everyone's credit, since 1996, every day, there's been a donation of data to the Internet Archive from Alexa Internet, even after Alexa was bought by Amazon.com in 1999. So uh, when Amazon bought Alexa, though, they weren't buying Alexa, the, the hockey puck that talks to you. No, unfortunately. Yes, yeah. so I know people say, oh, great, Bruce, you did Alexa? It's like, yeah, but not that one. <laughs> or, oh, you did Waze? Yeah, but not that one. Um, and so it's like, <laughs> darn. Um, I, it was a good idea, but uh, no, it wasn't my idea. So the Alexa that you built did what? It was basically uh, uh, scanning and absorbing books and... Uh, actually, the web, it, it basically was trying to catalog the web by going and archiving all of it and then providing people a way that if you're on this web page, if, if you like this web page, you might like these web pages. And it was based on where everybody else had done. It's sort of like people who bought this book bought those books, right? Um, it's, it was that kind of collaborative filtering, but applied at the whole web scale. Because I thought that basically we were going to need something to help us with search engines um, right. in the mid-90s. Um, and little did I know that Google was going to work so darn well. We still need the context about what it is you're looking at and new ways of finding where you should go. But Google worked so well that actually that function of Alexa didn't work all that well. But it continued to collect the whole web and understand it. Go and data mine it. Go and find all the links and, and basically chart the whole web, which is kind of cool. And that company still exists as part of Amazon. And then you, so you sold that, but, and they still donate what, this stuff that they find? Yes. All the, basically they're crawling the web every day and, um, and they donate that to the internet archive and it forms the early collections of the internet archive before the internet archive started crawling itself about 10, 15 years ago. And now there are about a thousand librarians and 600 organizations that guide the crawls that the Internet Archive does. Those librarians and those institutions are building subject-based collections, whether it's uh, political movements in South America or it's their own organization's websites, uh, those sorts of, uh, of of commands, that, but it also feeds into the global Wayback Machine, which is what's uh, used uh, so often for free on archive.org. So then these librarians are kind of teaching algorithms or agents how to go out online and what to look for and, and, and what, to, what, to, what to bring home. Yes, absolutely. For instance, we're, we're trying to get better at the news sites for each of the countries around the world. So how do we go and make sure that it's not only the you know real classic news sites, but also the social media sites from the current politicians and public interest groups and influencers? How do we go and try to get good collections of these so that they're at least recorded? Then they can be used by journalists or basically anybody to have an enduring record of what did our digital life look like. It's become such an important part of of some of the uh, changing political scheme and going on in the United States. And if it's happening here, it's happening everywhere else in spades. Right. Now, the, the beauty for me of Internet Archive, one of them, is the rhetorical point it allows me to make. So when people ask me, oh, what's an example of something that actually works online, not that's corporate and horrible? You know, 
And of course, I'll first I'll say Wikipedia. And they're like, oh, well, everyone says Wikipedia. What great. else you got? <laughs> and then I go, well, Internet Archive. And then it, that stops them in their tracks because it's like, uh-oh, he might have more. I mean, not that I have other ones in my back pocket, but it makes it look like now there's like, uh-oh, what else is he going to throw at me? But 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 Internet Archive, at least as I understand it, is is a few different things. It's the Internet Archive itself, which is all these you know books and videos and stuff. And then it's also the Wayback Machine, which is this weird kind of this this timeline that you can go back and see what a whole lot of the web looked like in like 19 April of 1997. What did Doug Rushkoff's site look like? You can find it there. <laughs> you yes. know? And that, so that's an interesting thing. It's like because you you understood, I guess, that the web was going to be changing every single day, but nobody was keeping track of what of these various moments. It's like, it's like when you have a little kid and you, you measure them against the door jam every day to see, you know, that's how big you were in 1966. Right. Oh, absolutely. The life average life of a web page is only a hundred days before it's uh. changed or deleted. Now, it, it, it's a constant shifting sand. It was sort of a con that we call it a pages. I mean, pages sound like they're going to be around for a while. They're not. Mm. Um, so how are we going to, to go and at least record them and then weave them back into the web. One way that I uh, that we've been working actually has been kind of cool and it I think helps string the different pieces of the Internet Archive together. If Wikipedia is the encyclopedia of the Internet, we're the library of the Internet. So mm. we're we're the place that you go to, hopefully, that is goes deeper. So Wikipedia has all of these footnotes that refer to um, – web pages or books or journal letter or articles. So we first went for the uh, for the for the web pages. And for the last 5 years, every time a Wikipedian goes and puts a new link in, we crawl it immediately, right away. And then uh, we basically go back over Wikipedia with a robot to go and replace all the broken links with links to the Wayback machine. We've replaced about 10 million links already. Uh, so we've fixed, I don't know, 8, 10 million broken links in Wikipedia. And we're now the number one place that people go to after Wikipedia. Then the next things that people do is go to uh, look for books, mostly on Google Books, and journal articles. So that's our next targets. We want to basically turn every footnote link in Wikipedia blue. We want to make it so that if it's a page in a book, you click on it and you open right to that right page in a book. So we've done this now basically with the Wayback Machine with trying to get all the uh, hypertext links to work. But can we do it now with books and journal literature? Can you make it so you can go deeper? When I was in high school, you're actually if you just use the encyclopedia for your report, you got a D. Right. Uh, you had to go, you could start in the encyclopedia, you just couldn't end in the encyclopedia. So let's make it easier to go to the book, help people dive in, get better resources, and end up in some controversy where the Wikipedia is always trying to be, you know, that kind of bland truth. Let's get, let's get people get into the real stuff. Right. Now, the trick is, I mean, and let's use an easy example. So if I want to see, a Broadway play that's closed. I could go to the Lincoln Center Public Library, the, the Lincoln Center branch of the New York Public Library, and they have on videotape or now on DVD, they have single camera recordings of every Broadway show since like 1980 or something. Oh, so cool. Now, if I want to see that though, I've got to go, anybody can do it. 
but I've got to walk in person to that library to watch that videotape as if that somehow is the protection of it. Now, you could say, and I could say, well, shoot, there's this resource. Anyone in the public is allowed to see it if they walk there. Why don't we stick it on archive.org as the Lincoln Center Library Broadway show archive and let anybody see it? And they'll say, no way, no way. You can't have put that on the net. Now, what, what, and I, because I'm sure you thought about it so much more. How did libraries kind of become more the, the, protectors or the limiters of access rather than the promoters of access and is this a problem is there or is, is there a philosophical argument it is a huge problem um so if you take just let's go for books as opposed to video video has its own issues uh, to it um but let's take books um if you look at the books that are online digitized by the internet archive we digitize a thousand books every day we're going great up to 1923 um, libraries pay to have them done. We have uh, we have three or four million books pre nineteen twenty three all online, but everything beyond that it's only a million of them. The twentieth century is largely missing, and it's be- not because these are commercially exploited books, um, right? Where people are are you know waiting around for their royalty checks. These are long out of print. It's just because they happen to be uh, uh, still under copyright, and they're not in the Internet Archive's collections to be uh, made available yet. Um, I'll go over how we do it in such a way that it's respectful to copyright for those copyrighted books in a minute. But let's they're just not even there. But if you say, okay, well, just go and buy it. Well, if you look, there's a study of the new books available from Amazon.com, and we have the same graph. It's going great up to 1923, and then most of the 20th century is missing. So we're basically, you can't get it from an online library like the Internet Archive. You can't get it from Google to buy it, uh, uh, Amazon to buy it. It's just not available to this generation. The 20th century is missing. We're bringing up a, a generation without access to the 20th century. And the 20th century was a pretty freaking important century. The last time there was a major right-wing swing and rise of fascism you know, across the world was during that period. And we should learn from it. So what's going on? What's going wrong? Well, we haven't, most libraries haven't figured out that they can go and digitize things and make them available under the same kinds of restrictions that they do with their print. It's called controlled digital lending. So if you have a physical copy, uh, there are these copyright stallers that have gone in a pint on this. They say, basically, you can digitize that and lend it one reader at a time. It's clunky as hell right? It's really weird, right? But it's one reader can have access to this. And then once they're done, it comes back. And then the next person, if there's a wait list, there it is. Libraries can do this. So we've been doing this now since 2011, uh, led by the Boston Public Library and a bunch of other libraries now, 16 of them, are all working together to try to basically do this controlled digital lending. And that works well for the long tail, for the you know, they're not very accessed books, but it's a way of getting our 20th century materials online and somewhat available. So if you go to archive.org, or actually a better site is uh, that we also run, which is really about books, openlibrary.org, you can go and check around and you can check out these books and they're awesome. And you can read them, but it's only one reader at a time. Um, if, well, right, which means that a book would be could be lent out if it's like a two-week period, it gets lent out 26 times over the course of a yep, year. That's a really so popular. If you were so if you even were talking to say E.M. Forster's estate, who are now upset that this rare book of his is online, 
And because we were thinking maybe to start selling them and we were going to make money, then you could tell him, well, yeah, buy the. we scanned a copy that's sitting on a shelf. And now 26 sales a year, you might lose to people who are borrowing it from the library instead. Yeah, I'd say that's and in general, what most people do on the internet is they're in and out of these books within a couple minutes. They don't right. actually read in the same kind of way. It's not for beach reading. This stuff is for mostly, it's like the Wikipedia footnote thing. I just want to see a couple pages, then I'm done. Unfortunately, right. because it's free, people often don't remember to re return the book. So we basically have these books that are kind of stale, sitting around, checked out, but they're not. So it's not even, these aren't people that would buy the book. Um, these are people that are just trying to jump in, get something out of it, and, 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 and move on. And that's, I think, the great use of libraries, using books in a different way. Part of what reconnected us, though, was when the Authors Guild, uh, of which I'm a member, went really, got really mad that the open library exists. And I went into their community discussion boards, and I'm still smarting from the licking I took in there. Um, so people there, they don't know Brewster Kell from Jeff Bezos. Right. They just hear internet person, Uber, you know, bad. Right. And what they think in a kind of a, in, in the knee jerk way is they think, oh, you're digitizing and giving away my books. I'm already having enough trouble making money as an author. And now you're going to, you're going to give away digital copies of my stuff. And my thing is over. I think there's, there's a lot of confusion out there. I think people think, oh gosh, if it's digitized, it's and then it's going to be everywhere immediately. And it turns out that's not true. And this controlled digital lending is using the same restrictions on our dusty musties that it, it then the publishers are using for their in-print works. So it, the in-print works that are lent out from libraries with overdrive use the same technologies that we're using to protect books that are these older books. Um, so it's the same type of thing. It's just sometimes been either not represented right as it's been sort of bounced around on the internet. And I think people are feeling abused a lot. I mean, just, and, and people aren't in feeling general. like they're getting yeah. general. They're just feeling like they're, you know, they're getting screwed and they don't know how to trust. And, um, we've been doing this stuff a lot, right? Going and collecting everybody's web pages, digitizing books for, I don't know, 15 years now. We've been doing this for a long, long time. Um, and people want to know whether they're better off or worse off by having this stuff happen. If they feel like they're being taken advantage of, they'll throw things at you, whether it's lawyers or hate mail or whatever. So the key thing for us is to pull back from the point where people don't feel like they're being taken advantage of. And this uh, digitize and lend, unless you don't, believe in libraries, which actually um, some of those organizations have gone and said that librarians are pirates. Um, gosh, that's that's a little hard to argue. But anyway, um, or used bookstores are bad. Um, there are some people that are that extreme. And I think we're we are a library. So if, if people think librarians are pirates, then, you know, it's going to be hard to us avoid that. Right. But we're just I mean, the library. trick is, though. But the trick is, though, before the internet, a lot of practices that were okay were okay because they were kind of difficult to do. So yes, it's of course it's perfectly legal for anybody to sell a book that they've bought for two bucks and and recoup some of the cost of the book. But when now you've got something like Amazon and someone goes 
and they're looking to buy your book, you know, from the second week your book's available, there's going to be $2 copies of that book. And they're hovering with their mouse. Do I want to pay 20 bucks for Doug's new book or two bucks for Doug's new book? And it's going to come by Amazon Prime and everything anyway. It's like, which are you going to take? I'm going to take the two bucks, yeah. you know, unless I want to really support Doug. So all of a sudden now, well, wait a minute. I don't like there being used books. I don't like Chegg giving used textbook. And the same thing for libraries, where it used to be someone would have to at least walk to the library with their card and borrow the book and wait to see if a copy's really available. Now, if they're just going to be able to click and get it online, all of a sudden it looks like um, it looks like something else. Absolutely. There's a balance here. It's, it's all a balance and trying to figure that out. And this controlled digital lending is kind of our approach towards uh, replicating the friction of a library. So if you were to go to openlibrary.org uh, or go to archive.org and look at the, the books that are, it's about a million books that are available that are have rights issues. About a third of them right now are checked out. A third of them. And hmm. so you're, it's going to be a wait, right? If you want the book, you know, um, <laughs> go buy it. Go buy it for two bucks or twenty bucks. Just you know, if you can. But the 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 love mail that we get from people is, wow, this is great. I've I, you know I I haven't been able to get this, um, or I live in the sticks so I can't get access to my library, um, or I'm just too poor to be able to go and buy. So those are the sorts of people that use the library. I mean, a lot of us just click to go to Amazon because frankly, we have the two bucks or the 20 bucks and going down to the library is kind of a pain. Um, so we're tr we basically have in put in friction on purpose. An example of that was the television news archive. We archive all the television news, tv.archive.org. It's, it's an under loved part of the internet archive. People just don't seem to know of it, but you can go and search on what people said and be able to get one to three minute clips. But we don't put the news in until a day goes by. So it, you can't basically watch this instead of going to CNN.com or whatever. Um, and that's very much on purpose. It's a, it's a, with a, a one-day uh, uh, delay. You can search. You only get a couple minutes. If you want the whole thing, we print it onto a, a USB stick and send it to you, and then you have to send it back. You say, gosh, why can't I download it? And it's exactly the friction you're talking about. Right. So building in friction, it's interesting though. It, it's almost like, I understand it's in order to create balance. I'm sure there are some people, if you talk to say a Clay Shirky or, you know, or at least Clay Shirky 10 years ago, one of the information wants to be free, no matter what people, they would argue, why even add that friction at all? It's an artificial, it's an artificial obstacle to the dissemination of knowledge to the human organism. Um. <laughs> It's not difficult to argue with that, right? We, I think we have, we have enough money. It's just not distributed right yet. It's it's most egregious when we're dealing with journal literature, academic journal literature. Right. That's all supposed to be there so you can build on the, uh, stand on the shoulders of giants to go and and read these and use them and build on them. Yet you end up with paywalls and segmentation and silos that unless you're in a very rich organization, you just don't get access to the benefits of this publicly funded research. It's dumb. Um, so hopefully that will uh, change, but why are they being slow about it? But there's billions of dollars um, of people wanting to not to change. Um, but there's 
areas that we need to, to move along. We're trying to find a path through this. The Wayback Machine, the television archive, the book collection, uh, the music collection. Um, we do all 78s and make those publicly downloadable. But the LPs and the CDs, those are only 30 seconds. Then we link off to YouTube and Spotify. Uh, and then maybe if we find that those are out of print, maybe out of print for long enough, then we can make them more available. So those are those are some of the ways we're trying to make it so that this generation that turns to their screens to answer questions has actually an a, a library that's anywhere near as good as what I had growing up. I had a library that was very slow to use, but had everything. And if they, they would always say, right. hey, if we don't have it, we'll get it for you. But the library for most people now is they turn to their screens. They turn to Google or, or Wikipedia or the Internet Archive. And if it's not there, they'll use whatever they can get. And that's not good enough. We're going to end up um, with a generation that's going to learn from whatever they can get a hold of. And the, what they can get a hold of is not the best that people have ever done. And therefore, we're going to get the generation we deserve. And I think that's some of the problem we're seeing in the public sphere right now is people are learning from whatever's click, quick to click on. And, you know, we can go gripe about the big uh, platforms, but we haven't as the cultural institutions and the people that are trying to actually go and educate people, we haven't done our basic work to make it somewhat available. And we find that when we do make it somewhat available, people try very hard to learn from the best. So people aren't to blame here. I think we've got some overhanging bad business models and, and old laws, and we're all the Internet Archive is trying to do what it can to find a path through this thicket. So we end up with the Wikipedia generation getting access to good materials, not just what's quick and easy on Google. Well, in that sense, it feels to me like Internet Archive is trying to kind of be what the Internet was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, I know it's within the net, but it's, it's, this is the net that we imagined that we played with, with Gopher and Veronica, where you just went around and found stuff. But then somehow the, the, the previously open web was enclosed just like the commons was in in you know in medieval England. It's true. This is the this is the internet that I signed up to build, the library of everything. And it's taken freaking forever. And um and I think there are evidence of it's going right, but then there's a lot of evidence of it going very, very wrong. And the the big platforms are kind of the rebirth of the AOLs or the Lexus Nexuses. And App World, if we, if we lose out on on hypertext linking from one place to another, and you're basically stuck in some little uh, silo on your phone, um, we are we've lost um, something very great that we've built over the last twenty years, and it's happening. Right. Right. It feels like this is what happened to to when ham radio, not that I, I love ham, but when ham radio became the commercial radio dial, it's like ham was so far is so far in the background. People don't even know they have, you know, radio telephony at their at their fingertips. And it, it's sort of the same thing with the Web, that even if some, you know, I guess eventually they'll rediscover it. But it's as if the 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 open Web is so subordinate. Well, there's there's some Facebook good, and good things going there. You know, the fifth most popular website in the world is Wikipedia, which is pretty freaking awesome. We're the number 300th most popular, which we think is pretty good. That means there are 100 million yeah. that are less popular. But it, it means that the, the, we're not where Wikipedia is. I'm a little envious. Okay. But there, these are nonprofits that are trying to fill in 
the breadth of knowledge that are, don't have a business model like a Netflix to just go and push the uh, cream of the crop, the most popular stuff. Um, and with the last election in the United States, there's been a lot more support, a lot more donations, people um, coming in saying, I'm going to you know, skip out of my dot-com career and work on a dot-org for a fraction of the uh, of, uh, the money that I could make because I really want, I want a world that doesn't suck. Um, let's go and let's build that thing. So can, people are contributing more. People are contributing their time and effort. I think they're giving us all a bit more slack to go and try mm. to make sure we don't lose the republic. And we reinforce these democratic access to information ideals all around the world. What if we made this so that, you know, that there's new elections in Nigeria right now that are kind of in scary lands or some of the things that went on with Brazil. People were really worried about a lot of the, uh, the new government taking a lot of the websites down. So we actively worked with people in Brazil to collect those materials so that those would be preserved, like uh, what we're going on with the climate change things in this country. We have to go and build a library uh, because the new waves of fads, of trends, of new regime change um, shift around what's commercially available um, because those are subject to different pressures than we libraries in the nonprofit world. So we need more help, right. um, but it is absolutely the vision of the in- internet um, that I think we are still capable of, of preserving, but boy, has it got to be loved, embraced, and defended, or it will we will lose it. It will become more like cable television right. or, I don't know, video game land. Yeah, and it has to be argued for actively because, I mean, you you and your organizations are kind of between a rock and a hard place. You know, on the one side, you have all the corporations that are trying to push you out and privatize everything. And on the other side, you have, you know, uh, concerned citizens who see you as part of the same problem. Yep. In other words, the the sharing economy has been so cynically exploited by the Ubers and Airbnbs that nobody believes in couch surfing anymore, right. if you know right. what I mean. When did sharing actually mean you're paying somebody? That's just such a weird thing. Um, but yeah, so how are we going to go and, and, and rebuild systems that actually work? The great news is if you make these things available, people watch them and learn from them and read them and contribute to them. That there is a hunger out there for good talk. There's good hunger out there for thoughtful um, uh, discussion and and areas where they can actually participate in an ongoing good. It's when people feel like they're just not being listened to or they're just being sold to or commoditized that they're just going to check out. So let's make the internet uh, a little bit more like what we originally planned out of that. Let's push some of these platform companies into linking into the deeper resources so we're not just getting somebody's blog post standing as the truth on some particular subject. Let's let's go and make it so that we get as good information to this next generation that frankly is searching and reading all of the time, just in a different way than I did growing up, but they're searching and reading all the time. Let's give them good stuff to read. I think one of our big challenges right, right now is context. If the, the answer I think I would say for bad speech is more context. 
um, that we need basically a mechanism for people to know what is true about this or what's the evidence around it? What's the reputations of the authors? Has this been around for a long time? Am I the last to know or the first to know about this particular subject? And that's really difficult to get. Everything looks kind of the same when you're flipping past it on your phone and Instagram. Well, and that's intentional because, you know, context gives the user grounding and context makes the user uh, less easy to manipulate. You know, the the YouTube is not about giving you context of what's before or after. It's about drawing you further into an extreme version of, you know, the algorithmically predicted uh, uh, self. Right. You know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just trying to drag you over to the, the, the more, you know, the violent version of, of whoever you are. That brings me to another one of your one of the points, at least that I've inferred from what you're saying, is uh, w- when you talk about big data and algorithms and all the technologies we've developed, it seems like we've used and we continue to use so many of them to index and understand and categorize people, but so little of it are we actually using on information. Mm. In other words, it's like there's been this weird reversal. I write about this in Team Human, this reversal of figure and ground where we're no longer analyzing the stuff. We're just analyzing people as data in order to deliver human consciousness up to data rather than delivering data to human consciousness. <laughs> well, that's a good one. I love that. Well, I, I've been dreaming uh, about doing more uh, algorithmic things on the content. Let's just take Wikipedia. Um, if, we have, if we can digitize all the books and journal literature that's um, that are referred to in the citations. Can we go and do some algorithmic checking of this assertion in Wikipedia to go and read the book that and the pages that it's referring to and find out, hey, is it actually there? <laughs> like is there a quotation? Is right. it actually there? Or is it kind or is this made up? Should it be flagged for somebody else to go look at? Um, you could go and graduate it to, you know, what's the reputation of that particular assertion, right? Because if it if that assertion isn't backed up by lots of other books that are on the same same subject, then that's another reason to maybe flag it. Or can you even help the Wikipedia contributors that are looking to back up their statements and they're just going to Google, you know, punching in some words and then say, hey, I've got a footnote. Can we go and say, no, that footnote is, you know, that's, that's out there in the fringe. They still may be what they want to use, but they should at least know the context that this thing is out on the fringe of commonly held beliefs on that particular uh, uh, factoid. So that type of understanding and machine augmentation of intelligence towards building a global brain that's worthy of being talked to, I think is within our grasp at this point, if we just pull back a bit and remember what it is we're building this thing for. And I think we've kind of got lost in the dot-com mania of yet another stock whatever. And what we've got here is the library of Alexandria for the digital age. We've got it so that we can make all the published works of humankind, books, music, video, web pages, back to Sumerian tablets, all available to anybody that wants to have access to them. That is a fantastic thing that we've never been able to do. We could actually one-up the Greeks, right? They, the Greeks and the Egyptians built the library of Alexandria. We can now make that available to anybody. And that's, I'd say, the opportunity of our time. And we're stumbling towards it, but I think we need a concerted effort to just complete the darn project. Otherwise, we'll have people, well, being manipulated, as you say. Right. I mean, you quoted David Byrne in a recent talk where where he said years ago, he said, there's going to be so much going on that no one will be able to keep track of it. 
And you're saying, no way, of course yeah. we can keep track of it. That's We've got computers. That's what right. they do. But we still have not applied them to that. You know, we're, we're almost in this uh, IBM and the Holocaust moment. It's like, oh, we got these great computer punch cards. You know, let's keep track of, of, of immigrants or something. Let's use no, them. You're, you're uh, let's use them on right. People. We've got a real problem out there. Snowden was, you know, he, he basically put it glaringly all in our face that we're that we're being abused by organizations that uh, are supposed to be trusted. Um, and then with this last presidential election cycle, I think everybody just shook their head and said, holy crow, is this web betraying us? Are, are we really just getting, you know, fed a mouthful of crap? And I think actually we are. Um, so we need to fix it. Hmm. And um, so how? I think some of the business models are wrong. Uh, this ad-based stuff is, is a problem. We have some structural problems with the web. And the Internet Archive is working on a project called Decentralized Web. Can we make a peer-to-peer backend for the web? So that basically your, your websites that you use live everywhere and nowhere. Sort of a cloud for everybody. Um, such that if any particular part gets censored or brought down, you can still have access uh, to those materials on an enduring basis. Make it so it's more reliable, more private. The great thing is we still have a lot of idealistic people involved in the internet and the technologies. We need to focus it maybe away from how am I going to go and just make a whole heck of a lot of money by building a, a temporary monopoly and towards building a bit more of an infrastructure that works better. So we're, the Internet Archive is trying to build an Internet Archive, but decentralized. Can you make it so that if you're in some place that's not very connected, like in Africa, um, or censored, like in China, that you can still get access to these um, sorts of, of materials and know where it is you're getting from them and that they're accurately uh, represented. That would be the web that I think that we deserve, and it's what a large number of people, especially in the nonprofit area, uh, are, are working to try to build. Now, a, a lot of people who listen to, to this show, even though, I mean, they use the web to get their podcasts and all, would say that, oh, right, here's two, you know, relatively wealthy and intellectual white guys talking about why the internet's so important. But there are these people starving all over the world. There's climate change coming. You know, you're going to, why go and build internet archives when we've got to just deal with these more immediate, less elitist problems. Oh, they're right. They're right. Um, but uh, the... the <laughs> I love you for that. <laughs> but at least this stuff is cheap. So the, um, the internet archive is about $18 million a year, right? So we're about uh, the... They, just to give you a comparison, the San Francisco Public Library is $160 million a year. So we're on the order of 10% the cost of the San Francisco Public Library. So at least we're cheap. The, the big focus on the world uh, should be on, on fixing some of the big hard problems, but at least information and getting people to be educated, being able to depend on what they're looking at, uh, trying to have it so people trust something again. Uh, I think we're getting used to feeling like we're just being lied to all the time and we've normalized lying let's unnormalize lying and get it so that we've got some uh, a baseline uh, way of knowing what we're looking at what we can trust what what where did it come from provenance that structure and and frankly yes we've always been just a the information industry or libraries are just 
part of how we make society work. It's not the point of society. It is uh, we're just part of how to make it go. And you're the a, a truly decentralized web would ultimately be able to break through Chinese firewalls and give access to everybody everywhere to everything. I mean, and I guess the question then comes up, not that the Chinese are necessarily good actors in all this, but what of the culture that is trying to preserve itself by locking itself off from, you know, dangerous, decadent Western memes? You know, they're trying to, I remember back in the day when, you know, countries were talking about, we want to protect ourselves from Madonna and rap music and the, you know, the destabilizing right. influences of America. Um, I, I think it's going too far to going saying, you know, grant decentralized web and everything that's available everywhere permanently. It's, it, there's steps along the way and there's still organizations that would run in, in different parts of these systems and there'll be filters based on different national laws. And I'd like to try to make it so that we're not building a a digital world that feels like it's shifting out from underneath us. And so the decentralized web thing is more about, from my perspective, trying to make a more archivable, more library-like web infrastructure than what Tim Berners-Lee did 25 years ago. He, what he did was simple, um, and it was very effective, but it has some real flaws. We have problems with the business models that people built on it, or the lack of business models, just advertising pretty much. Uh, we've got problems in the uh, shifting things of, of, of single points of failure uh, problems. We have the spying problems. Um, you can't roll back and go to backups very easily. So there's a bunch of things that Tim didn't put in that we've been always just trying to basically mend the web um, as it's taken off. Right. And through no fault of his own. I mean, it was really hard to foresee an advertising-free, publicly-sponsored internet turning into this electronic strip mall. I mean, it's not, it's not what it was right. built for. But we've ended up in this world where, I mean, gosh, I can't even like find a copy of an article that I might have published last month, but I feel like Google's got every dirty web search I've ever done <laughs> right. for eternity. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yep. It's like, <laughs> it's both permanent and completely um, uh, uh, temporary. Yes, yeah, and, and it's lumpy in all the wrong ways. And uh, so we're, I think we're all stumbling forward and it's, it's making a bunch of people feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, the privacy aspects that my kids are um, comfortable with kind of give me the heebie-jeebies. Um, uh, the, mm -hmm. my one son said, all cool new apps are somewhat creepy. <laughs> and I think that's true. I, I would just like to see if somebody can come out with a really cool new app that isn't creepy, that doesn't like spy on you and sort of make you feel like you're being kind of sucked a little bit uh, in terms of your information and put places that you're not even quite sure where they are. That that kind of thing uh, is something we should try to avoid. We, we can do better than this. I mean, one of the challenges, though, is that, you know, human beings have the home field advantage here on planet Earth in, in reality, whereas out on the web or on the Internet, it feels as if, you know, corporations and artificial intelligences, which may in some ways be the same thing, that this is like their turf, that they can grow exponentially, they can do all these things, and we're just scaled so locally. I mean, do you feel like uh, in, in some ways it's it's hard to to humanize yes. these these virtual yeah, spaces. I, 
the idea that uh, corporations are viruses that can basically um, grow out of control. We've we've lost some of the checks and balances on those on those entities, um, and that's a that's a real problem. Yeah, and we've given them a, a landscape to grow. We've said here, you know, we've given them essentially bodies yes. at this point, rather than just. And I paper. like your uh, uh, tying artificial intelligence to them. When I, when I, I I'm an old AI guy. I, I, I studied artificial intelligence mm-hmm. at MIT when Marvin Minsky, Danny Hillis, you know, all the that, that was that was my background, and it was like, oh, I finally get it. Um, if you want to understand what AIs are going to act like, look at corporations. I think of corporations as first-generation AIs. That basically they're they're full of people that are sort of stripped bare to become automata to basically do the bidding of a very simple bidding of a corporation, right? Whether paperclip making or whatever that the uh, the thing uh, that the corporation is supposed to go off and do. And AIs um, are that is probably the best way of viewing what an AI will become is what corporations are. And they can expand exponentially if they're fed more data. And so, wow, boy, does that, that feels a little grim. So is there, are there ways that we can go and learn from what happened to corporations to try to keep AIs sort of serving the general public good? Um, is there uh, ways that we can bring back something that's not uh, as corporate um, I like the nonprofits. And the nonprofit structure in the United States is unique around the world. Um, and the nonprofit structure, I think, is like a an open source software release. It's 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 or a Creative Commons, some rights reserved. Basically, nonprofits give up some of the fully exploitative things that corporations can do to get a tax advantage and to get a dot org and the halo effect of it being a nonprofit. We we can't sell ourselves. We can't, um, we can't, we have no shareholders, so there's no synergy for going in and being acquired. So nonprofits basically don't get acquired. They tend to last a long time. The Internet Archive's been around for 22 years. EFF, 25 years. That's a long time. Right. And they could, right. And they can ultimately pay their people money. I mean, the only, this is, I keep trying to argue with people when they're starting companies to start them as nonprofits. It's like the great thing about being a nonprofit is you'll always be selling the thing you do and never selling yourself. Yes, you know? <laughs> nice way of putting it. Nice way of putting it. I love nonprofits. Also, nonprofits, typically the high-tech nonprofits are easier to work between each other because we don't go and build up these non-disclosure walls and going and calling everything intellectual property all the time. We tend to be much easier to work with towards sharing information back and forth between each other. We're just more efficient in many ways. Um, so the non the open source software, free and open source software of Richard Stallman, the Creative Commons uh, work of, of Larry Lessig, I think that uh, along that trajectory is the high tech nonprofits, these infrastructure oriented nonprofits that are building uh, services that we can use where you know what they're there for. You're you. You know that they're not going to just get acquired off into Microsoft um, or Google and become something that you didn't want to invest in in the first place. Right. Time. And that's the, the irony is that so many people, when I ar- make the argument you're making now, they'll say, oh, well, the internet, none of this stuff would be here if it wasn't for these great for profit companies. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> don't mosaic, remember well. You know, exactly. Mosaic, CUC Me, Eudora, FTP, go, the, the whole friggin' web. This is. 
the only thing we got since the nonprofit shareware era of the net is like more colors or faster feeds and speeds, <laughs> but it's the same exact stuff. And in fact, it's built on the same thing. So Google is built out of free and open source software. Um, all of these companies uh, are, and they're basically exploiting it for their own um, gain, which is kind of what corporations are for. You just don't want corporations to get too big or monopolistic. And unfortunately, we've kind of lost those checks or balances. But one thing that I like about the way you you present is you always ask for help. In other words, you get up to a point where you're talking about how to build a decentralized web and what to do. And then you'll say, but there's all this stuff we have to figure out. And I bet there's people in this room <laughs> yes. who have some of the answers, which is so anti-Silicon Valley. You know right. the way those guys are. They get up, they know friggin' everything. <laughs> um, and you admit that you don't know everything. And I'm guessing that even though you sold Alexa and Waze and stuff, you're not like some Bezos billionaire guy. So it's not just like you've got billions of dollars to just pay for Internet Archive, right? I mean, you still oh, need yeah. funding. The Internet you? Archive, uh, I, I put in money to keep the lights on so I can look people in the eye and go and say, yes, your data is going to be safe. But all of the, um, so yeah, we're $18 million a year. About half of the money comes from earned income of librarians paying us to collect the web or turn pages and digitize books. Uh, and about half uh, comes from foundations, in including mine, but I'm a, a small minority. And then, um, but we also have been doing well with the Wikipedia end of the year begathon. Where it, and people mm -hmm. are contributing more. Oh, crypto guys. The, uh, we, we got the most money actually in the last couple of years from crypto folk um, that have contributed millions of dollars to us. And I, that's very interesting because you think of the crypto folks as not necessarily the most philanthropic out there. Um, but it turns out there are a lot of people that want to see a different society and different structure. And so they've been contributing to things like the, like the Internet Archive and the EFF, Public Knowledge, which is in the, in the uh, D.C. area. Uh, this thing is is one big experiment on how we can work together to build a society we want to live in. And we now have some technologies that can do it. And frankly, this open internet is fabulous. If we close this thing down, if it becomes a super regulated uh, world where only licensed materials um, are, are available, we'll have lost something of the experimentation and the uh, low barrier to entry for new ideas to be put out there. That's what I love about this thing is it's all a little wacky. It's all just us. Yeah. And, and it's funny when I, I was going to ask you to ask to, to tell people what it is that they can do to sort of contribute to this effort. And I'm thinking really the first thing they can do is yeah. to use it. In other words, don't even worry about paying for it. Don't worry about what task just, in other words, if you're worried that the internet is only going in one direction and that's towards sort of Facebook, Russian mob, right. insanity, you know, electoral politics, hatred, Go on the go on internet. Uh, uh, go on archive.org. Just go to the Prelin the 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 film archives, the the Prelinger film archives, and look at, gosh, look at the Westinghouse <laughs> propaganda films that they did for the yes. World's Fair. Machine production makes better and cheaper products. As a result, more people want and can buy them. That in turn creates a demand for more labor. Um. Look at, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking of my favorite Oh, stuff. duck and cover. That's why these children are practicing to duck and cover just as you do in your school. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it. 
get under your desk and you'll survive a nuclear war thing. I, it, it's all there. Uh, just the foibles and weird stuff. It's all stuff. there. Frank Capra's movies. You know, Frank Capra, the guy who did It's a Wonderful Life, made propaganda yes. films on what he did one on why we fight which is with talking to school children and, and I guess the public about why it Disney is America as well. goes to war and Disney why as well, Disney as well, the training of a Hitler youth as a Disney right. cartoon. I mean, and if you start watching that, the net, your experience of the net will be the opposite of what it is right now. Your experience of the net becomes not sensationalist. It becomes educational and connective and contextual. And you become this Richer, imagine this the internet is a place that you go to become a smarter, <laughs> richer minded person. I, let's and and if, <laughs> and if you're if anybody has ideas on how we can make the internet archive better, because it's really hard to use, Trish, go, go to archive.org, but but take a little time and just dive in and try to try to find some music. Like we have all the Grateful Dead, we have thousands of bands have contributed to their concerts, um, we've got um, books galore we've got comics we've got all sorts of things it's not easy to find try openlibrary.org that's also another way in um the wayback machine go try to find your old web pages and see if they're there and hit the upload button on archive.org there's an upload button just add something anything just start contributing and, and see if it doesn't do it for you. You'll probably go and say, yeah, this should be done better. That should be done better. But that's the invitation for you to become more involved to help it be better. Um, if we're missing something that you know that should make it generations, then it's your responsibility to make it sure. Maybe you were in a band. Maybe you you know, maybe you had your, your family photos. Whatever it is, something that you know should make it the next generation. It's your now responsibility. Go archive.org, hit upload, and just participate. Make it go. Don't just make a Wikipedia page and, and say you're done. Uh, link it off in, into things. Um, play with it. This is our internet. If it just becomes yet another 500 channels of TV, we'll have lost. Yeah, and that's the beauty of it, is that the invitation of the internet is still open. The window of opportunity for changing civilization, you know, is not closed. Right. You know? And 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 this is really one of the one of the great trailhead is probably a better uh, word to use uh, for for a great internet adventure. And Doug, I love your perspectives on all the issues of our day, of whether it's um, money issues, corporations kind of going right or wrong, um, how we can go and and have our society work better um, is something that you've really brought to the world and brought focus on over the years and really respect that. Oh, well, thanks. And I'm, I'm motivated now to make an internet archive, my uh, archival home. Well, let, let us help. <laughs> and, and to anybody that's listening to this, if, if, if you need help, write to info at archive.org. And there's actually humans here. Um, and <laughs> we'll do what we can to help. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brewster Kale, for being on Team Human. Thank you very much. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He ducked and cover, ducked and Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the founder of the Internet Archive, Brewster Kale. You can start your journey through the Internet Archive at archive.org. 
Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Our associate producer is Josh Chapdelaine. Our community manager is Michael Bass. Our virtual futurist is Luke Robert Mason. Team Human is produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hey, Bert, come on out and meet all these nice people, please. All right, we really can't blame you. You see, Bert is a very, very careful fellow. When there's danger, this is the way he keeps from being hurt. Sometimes it even saves his life. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.